Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of the Kalka River, the year 1223, part three of three. In the last episode I talked a little about the extraordinary conquests of the Mongols under leadership of Genghis Khan. Beijing and northern China fell in 1215, followed by the Khwarezmian Empire of Persia and Afghanistan in 1220. Next, two of Genghis's most trusted generals, Subutai and Jebe, led a large army westwards on a reconnaissance mission circumventing the Caspian Sea. They were met early on with resistance by the Kingdom of Georgia, but defeated their armies twice in battle. Next, the Mongol army was forced to fight a coalition of forces led by a steppe tribe called the Cumans. They tricked the Cuman leaders into accepting bribes to leave the battlefield, and then after crushing their allies, turned on the Cumans and inflicted a heavy defeat on them by the River Don in the year 1222. For Sibitai and Jebe, it may have seemed that the most difficult part of their journey was behind them. After resting and resupplying with food and horses, the two generals were confident enough to divide their forces. Jebe took his division westwards, while Subutai rode southwest to reconnoitre the coast around the Sea of Azov and to destroy a group of Cumans who had fled there. It was during this trip that Subutai accomplished one of the most significant achievements of the expedition. He forged an alliance with the local Venetian trading posts, which had recently sprung up since the fall of Constantinople in 1204 during the Fourth Crusade. For both sides, it was clear that it was in their mutual benefit to work together. For several days, Subutai entertained the Venetians lavishly, asking them endless questions about the civilizations of Europe and the positions and strengths of the kingdoms that lay beyond the steppes. The two sides then agreed to become allies and trading partners, in return for the Venetians providing detailed reports on the economic strengths and military movements of the countries they visited, the Mongols agreed that wherever they rode, all rival trading stations would be destroyed, and Venice would be left with a monopoly. The first victim of this arrangement was the Genoese outpost of Sudak, on the coast of Crimea. Subutai led his army across the Straits of Kirsch that separate the Sea of Azov from the Black Sea, which were at that time of the year frozen, and raised the unfortunate Sudak to the ground. After the defeat of his son and brother, a leader of the Cumans, named Khotiam, took shelter with his son-in-law, the Russian prince Mstislav Mstislavich of Galicia, and pleaded for assistance to help protect his people. At the same time, more junior Cuman leaders were doing the same with the Russian princes. 
At first, some of the Russians, who had long suffered from the Kuman raids, were unsympathetic, but as news came of the approaching Mongol armies, they began to heed the following warning. They have taken our land today, tomorrow it will be yours. Prince Mstislav Mstislavich of Galicia agreed to help, and reminded the other Russian princes that if they did not join in, then the Kumans might be compelled to join forces with the Mongols. Faced with the pleas and gifts of the Kumans, the horror stories of what the Mongols had already inflicted elsewhere, and a general sense of looming danger, the Russian princes agreed to an alliance, and to march together against the Mongols. Rather than risk the Mongols ravaging their lands as they liked, the Russians decided to take the battle to the Mongols, and to confront them head-on. And so in the second half of March, 1223, they prepared for the forthcoming campaign. At the beginning of April, the princes led their separate armies from different parts of Russia towards the agreed meeting point. One group which came from the Principality of Kiev was led by its Grand Prince, Mstislav Romanovich, who I refer to as Prince Mstislav of Kiev. A second group, which arrived from Chernigov and Smolensk region, was led by Prince Mstislav Sviatoslavich of Chernigov, who I shall refer to as Mstislav of Chernigov. He was accompanied by a contingent under Prince Oleg of Kursk. A third group came from Galicia and Vorinia, led by the architect of the coalition, Prince Mstislav Mstislavich, nickname The Daring with his son-in-law, Prince Daniel Romanovich of Vorinia. I will refer to the third Mr. Slavich as Mr. Slavich the Daring. The ruler of the powerful principality of Vladimir Suzdal, Prince Yuri II, agreed to join the alliance, but his response was half-hearted. He agreed to send the force commanded by a nephew, but they mustered late and never took part in the campaign. By the end of April, the Russian forces had assembled near the town of Zarub, about 50 or 60 kilometres south of Kiev. Here they were visited by a Mongolian embassy, who insisted that their only quarrel was with the Kumans, not the Russians. We did not occupy your land, they told the assembled rulers, neither have we done anything to your towns or villages. The Mongols may well have been trying to split the Russo-Kuman alliance, and perhaps intended to turn their aggression towards the Russian princes later after the Kumans were dealt with. The Russian leader's decision to reject the offer in favour of honouring their agreement with the Kuman allies was understandable. But they went a step further. Suspecting that the Mongol ambassadors were spies, they had them murdered. This turned out to be a very unwise provocation. Perhaps they had not heard how the downfall of the Shah of the Khwarezmian Empire had been the consequence of a similar action. Either way, the Mongols were furious and sought immediate revenge. They sent a second embassy, and this time it was to make a declaration of war. Quote, if you support the Kumans, kill our ambassadors and are marching against us, then do what you will. We did not attack you, and God will be our judge. End quote. The assembled Russian armies marched down the right bank of the river Dnieper and on the 15th of May reached an island called Kordetizia, where a little river of the same name joins the Dnieper. The true size of the Allied army is, like any medieval army, a subject of debate. 
David Nicol, in his book, Karaka River 1223, writes that there were probably 80,000 to 100,000 fighting men, although only 15,000 to 20,000 of them were properly equipped and trained soldiers. On the opposite bank of the Dnieper were a small contingent of Mongols, with instructions to delay the Russians from crossing the river. The problem for the Russian princes was that no one had been given overall command, and each retained the right to act independently. So at first there was indecision about when and where to cross. It was Prince Mstislav, the daring of Galicia, who decided to make a move first and lead his men across. As they approached the enemy from their galleys, their casualties from arrows were high, but the Mongol force was too few in number and were all killed. As soon as the riverbank was secure, Mr. Slav the Daring signalled to the rest of the Galicians and Cumans to cross, and set out at once after the Mongol army. Emboldened by this early victory, the other princes rounded up their soldiers and followed him. Despite their growing confidence after this early victory, disagreements between the princes intensified. The only point of agreement seemed to have been that this would be an easy victory. While Mstislav the Daring insisted on pursuing the enemy, Grand Prince Mstislav of Kiev urged caution. He argued that it was a mistake to have crossed the Dnieper, and they should fight the Mongols there. So while the bulk of the army headed east, the Kievans remained long enough to build a fortified camp on the eastern bank. They then followed the rest of the army, bringing up the rear. For nine days the Cumans led the advance, accompanied by a contingent from Galicia and Varinia. As they advanced, the Mongol outposts fell back, one by one, letting loose arrows as they retreated. Behind the advance guard came the vanguard of the main army under Mstislav the Daring. He was followed in turn by the troops from Chernigov, with the Kievan forces of Prince Mstislav of Kiev brought up the rear. The fact was that Subutai was deliberately luring the Allies away from the river Dnieper. His token forces were meant to help string out the enemy, take advantage of the lack of cohesion between the different sections of the army and lead them to a battlefield of his choosing. On the 31st of May, 1223, the Allied army reached the banks of the Kalka River, where the Mongol army was waiting for them on the opposite bank. The exact location of the battle and even the identity of the river are not known for certain, but it is generally thought to be the River Kalachik a tributary of the Sea of Azov in the Donetsk region of Ukraine. After a minor skirmish in the morning, during which the Mongols were again defeated, the Russian princes again started to crawl, this time over whether to advance or to stay put and adopt a defensive position. Without a firm agreement being made, Mr. Slav Daring impatiently ordered the Galicians and Cumans to charge. The princes of Kursk and Varinia managed to keep up with them, but the contingent from Chernigov only crossed the river slowly, and the army of Kiev waited on the western side of the river. Subutai chose this moment to order his men to attack, easily exploiting the disorganisation of the Allies. The Mongol archers fired into the front ranks of the Cumans and Galicians, creating gaps which were exploited by heavy cavalry to break up the enemy lines. Panic quickly spread throughout the Allied vanguard, which attempted to retreat. But pursued by the Mongol horse archers, the Cumans inadvertently swept the men of Galicia along with them back towards the river Kalka. 
the army of Chernikov under Prince Mstislav Sviatoslavich was yet to complete the crossing, and so totally unprepared for battle, were slaughtered where they stood. Among the Allies, only Prince Oleg of Kursk succeeded in deploying his men in time to be an effective force. They were crossing at the same time as those of Chernikov, but despite their best efforts, they too were overcome and forced to flee. As the Russian army disintegrated, the army of Grand Prince Mstislav of Kiev could see what was happening on the other side of the river. They had just enough time to grab their weapons and establish a defensive position by surrounding themselves with wagons before the Mongols fell upon them. Some of the fleeing allies attempted to join the Kievans, but the Mongols cut them off. Subutai ordered some of his troops to keep the Kievans besieged while the rest continued to hunt down the fugitives. The defeated Russian princes retreated in different directions. The surviving troops of Galicia and Varinia, under Mstislav the Daring, fled back towards the Dnieper, where the Russian river fleet was still moored. From there they managed to sail down the Dnieper and escape with little further loss. The survivors from Chernigov, however, were less fortunate. They aimed to reach their homeland as quickly as possible, but the pursuing Mongols harassed them mercilessly. Prince Mstislav of Chernigov and his son were both killed in the retreat. The Prince of Smolensk, with a detachment of some a thousand men, managed to beat off their pursuers and so escape. Other scattered groups of fugitives suffered terribly at the hands of the Mongols. While this tragedy unfolded on the steppes around them, the army of Kiev, surrounded on all sides, made their way slowly westwards. The Mongols took great care, however, to make sure they would not escape. Under intense attack from archers, the Kievans bravely resisted for three days, but they then began to run out of drinking water. Escape was out of the question, and it was obvious that sooner or later they would have to surrender. Subutai offered to release the Russian princes and their followers for a suitable ransom, but as soon as the Kievans left the shelter of their wagon fortifications, the Mongols slaughtered some of them and took the rest of them prisoner. That night the Mongols held a banquet to celebrate their victory. A table built in the shape of a box was erected in the middle of the camp, and while Jebai and Subutai dined on it, Mstislav Romanovich of Kiev and two other princes were suffocated to death inside. Such was the gruesome revenge for murdering the Mongol ambassadors. The princes were not put to the sword because Mongol tradition dictated that no man was worthy to shed the blood of a royal prince except in battle. The Mongols pursued the remaining enemy as far as the river Dnieper, but then received orders from Genghis Khan to join Juchi, the eldest son of Genghis Khan, in an attack on the Volga Bulgars. So they turned back eastward across the Don and met Juchi's army on the banks of the lower Volga sometime during the summer of 1223. The joint army rode north along the Volga, but were themselves ambushed by the Bulgars and suffered heavy casualties, so much so that they were forced to retreat. It was a reverse and a humiliation which Genghis Khan and his commanders never forgot nor forgave. From there the Mongols returned east back to the steppes of Central Asia. On their way back, Jebai suddenly fell ill and died of a fever, leaving Subutai alone to enjoy the glory of the famous expedition. For the Mongol people, the expedition of 1221 to 1223 was a new source of legend and great pride. 
In just two years, Jibai, Subutai and their men had ridden over five and a half thousand miles, won more than a dozen battles against superior numbers and returned overloaded with plunder. The Russians, in contrast, looked upon the Mongol campaign as though it had been a plague, something they found difficult to explain. As wrote a chronicler from Novgorod, quote, We do not know where these evil Tatars came from, nor where they went. End quote. In the south of the lands of Kievan Rus, the defeated alliance remained intact, under leadership of Mitislav the Daring of Galicia, supported by the Cumans, while in the east the rulers of Vladimir Suzdal launched a campaign against the weakened Volga Bulgars. Further east beyond the Volga, from where the invaders had arrived, the land remained unknown to the Russians. They may be expected, or at least hoped, that the Mongol invasion was a one-off raid and would never be repeated. Instead, Kalkova had been but the first thunderclap of the coming storm. In 1237, the Mongols returned, but this time in yet greater numbers, and this time with the intention of staying, with profound implications for the whole of Eastern Europe. My name is Carl Rylott, and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. In upcoming episodes, in the Battle of Salado, 1340, I investigate how the Christian armies of Spain and Portugal were able to forge ahead with the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, but unable to gain a foothold in Africa. And the Battle of Slaus, also in 1340, which marks the beginning of the Hundred Years' War between England and France. But beforehand, I take a look at the history of the Baltic Sea and the Northern Crusades against the Pagans. This set of five episodes, which culminates with the Battle of Lake Papus in 1242, also known as the Battle on the Ice between the Teutonic Knights and the Russian Orthodox Christians, would be available exclusively on patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Patreon.com is a website where fans of a podcaster or other type of artist or creator can pledge their support by agreeing to pay a fixed amount each month. You will be in control of how much you decide to pay, but if you agree to pledge at least $3 a month, that's about $2 a month, you have available extra bonus material. The first episode on the Northern Crusades is available now on Patreon.com for free, but the remaining four parts will be only accessible to those who have pledged $3 or more. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact me at carl at historyeurope.net or you can contact me also on the Facebook page for this podcast. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. All the best and goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.